So I was I was sharing with a friend uh, a few days ago um, about uh, our our church, and I said uh, he, he's not a church guy, and I said, hey, you know, he's like, so what do you guys do? I'm like, well, we're we're kind of different, um, and I said, you know, we we meet at a gym. Uh, twice a month, and then we meet in homes other, you know, the other two Sundays a month, and I said, and like last uh, time we met together, we went out into the community and like pulled weeds, painted stuff, you know, hung out with uh, the elderly folks and blessed them in our community, and he looks at me and goes, do your church is weird, <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I took that as the highest compliment, and I'm glad, and he goes, it's weird, but that's a place I'd probably feel okay being around. Um, and so, church, thank you for serving our community in that way. Um, I love, 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 love that we took a risk like that. And um, folks that are new with us, you know, uh, that quiet that you saw, that awkward silence, we actually love that awkward silence. And so I'm thankful because what I knew was happening is people's wheels were turning. And I know that we also are a church with a ton of introverts. Um, so those are the embedded things that you've learned uh, this morning. Well, good morning. If you're new with us um, or just visiting or not a follower of Jesus, you picked a very interesting morning to be here. Uh, this morning, I'm going to tell you exactly who you should vote for in the upcoming election. Uh, some of you will, will be disappointed and some of you may be offended. Um, and so this summer, we've been going through a series uh, on misconceptions about God. And this series has actually created uh, much more stir than we had hoped. And it's been great to see many of us in the room, those who have been visiting with us over the summer, summer recognizing places misconceptions have lived and resided for years. And so the ultimate goal of what we're doing in this, entire, this whole summer, and specifically today is to get a clearer picture of who God is and what he is really like and how we should live in response to this God. That's our goal. Our goal is not to dwell and live in the misconceptions, but to face them head on. And we realize that that's actually hard work. Uh, that doesn't happen. Unfortunately, uh, gatherings are not like sitcoms. 30 minutes later, you're not going to walk out and be like, dude, that was great. I got it all figured out. Thank you. You've, you've made it all. It just it ended perfectly. But it actually causes us to wrestle. And that's why house churches are so important because it pushes us back into smaller places, into smaller communities. We're able to say, wrestle with this. Man, this is a misconception. How do I work through this? What do I do? Um, but as we read through the scriptures, we are always confronted with the God who does the unthinkable. When we think we have him pinned down as a Santa Claus, a good luck charm, a tyrant, a Democrat or Republican, uh, he blows up our box, he shakes us up. Uh, as a professor of mine at seminary used to always say, have you read the Bible? And I love that statement because the truth is, is when I read it, it changes the way that I see God and I see the world and I see the interaction of the two things. Um, and our idea of God tells us more about us than about God. Uh, that's by uh, Thomas Merton. Uh, he was a, a monk from Kentucky. And, uh, but I love that, that, that phrase because it's so true. As we look at our misconceptions, what we're recognizing is we're, we're seeing the constructs that we've built God in. And we're trying to come to a place to see who God really is. And so when we look at these misconceptions, I want us to recognize two things, three things actually. Number one, we don't run deep into the wilderness of our misconceptions with nothing in our bags. Our map is the scripture, and our compass and our guide is the Holy Spirit, and our companions are the community of saints around us. We're not alone. We're not alone. 
But we also don't leave scripture behind. We don't leave spirit behind. We don't leave our companions behind. We are moving and journeying together. Uh, and God is a God who leads us. He's not a God who leaves us. He leads us. He does not leave us. And so this morning topic is an important one, especially in light of something big happening in November. And I'm not talking about Black Friday. Uh, I'm talking about the election. And unfortunately, when we mix politics and religion, we always get politics. Um, I read uh, an article um, titled this, When Christian Leaders Tell, uh, Tell Me Who to Vote For. And, and this is just an excerpt from it. It said, Because the Father cannot be contained in our political inclinations, Jesus does not fit our political agendas. The Holy Spirit is beyond and above the political spirit. It's time to stop pretending like we know what God is thinking. And some folks have said this about what they believe God has been thinking, that Bernie, Bernie supporters were saying his agenda is the most like Jesus. Trump supporters have said uh, because of his strength, he has been chosen by God. Cruz supporters posted that he is a defender of biblical values. Rubio supporters asked, have you seen the video where he shares his faith? And Hillary's supporters wrote, God has decided to put a woman in the White House. I want to remind us today that God is not a Republican, he's not a Democrat, he's not a Libertarian, and he is not part of the Green Party. And so what is God? What is his political identity? And so we're going to take a very interesting dive uh, through the story of Scripture, because that's where we find who God is and what he thinks, what are God's politics. And the Scripture, the big picture that we get throughout Scripture is that God is a king and he has a kingdom. That's the, that's, the most, that's the most pressing image that we see of who God is as we talk about political stuff within the scripture, that he is a king who has a kingdom. And so if we kind of take a step back to the story and we look, start in the, in the book of Exodus, which is a story about God delivering uh, a group of slaves, taking them out of Egypt, uh, out of oppression, out of slavery, pulling them into the wilderness, uh, setting up an alternative nation, giving this group of slaves an identity to, and setting them up to live differently as a blessing to the world to bring redemption and change to the civilizations around them, not to conquer them with sword, but to serve them with love and to live a different alternative way of doing life. That's what we call the law. When we read the law, what we see, and, and, and it's found in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we kind of see all these really weird rules, but what's happening is they're not just these really weird rules, they're, they're kind of, we have to pull them a little bit out of the context and recognize that when you are living in slavery, your identity is making bricks and doing work. Your identity, your culture is almost nothing. And so when God gives this people, Israel, and, uh, the law, he's giving them an identity. He's like, this is who you will be. And my friends, as we look through the law, it's brilliant. Talks about the way that, that they are to treat. It, it, Israel is amazing in the fact of, of this. This is one of my favorite things about Israel. Is that one of the things that God sets up is he, he says this. He said, when, when a slave escapes from a foreign country and runs and, and seeks refuge, you are to invite them in. 
and care for them. All other nations in that time period send them back, and they are killed. But this is a place, the, the nation that God sets up is a nation that says, if you're a refugee, if you're a slave, we invite you. You're allowed to be here. This is your home. We will take care of you. You are to live among us. And so we, what we see in, in all of this is that the law is not just a blessing in the way of power over others, but living and wooing through curiosity. Because this nation is supposed to be so different. This king and his kingdom is so different than power and conquest and all these other things that it just starts to make people lean in and say, what is happening? What is so different about this king and this kingdom? The idea is that God would be king and the people would follow. And this has always been the way that God has longed for. And God give is, he gives Israel a slave nation who has nothing and, and no one. He gives them a land. And he doesn't just give them a land and say, go destroy it, enjoy. He calls them to treat it responsibly with sustainable growing practices, with rest. God in, in his brilliance in the law laid out for the farmers and said, every seven years, don't farm. Give the land a break. Has any, have you, any of you ever read all the stuff that's going on with the farming practices in our country? We've literally ripped all the nutrients out of our soils. But in God's law, the way that he sets up this beautiful picture of, of how we are to live is one that says, look, we even take care of the land. That's an important thing because everything that I've created is a gift to you, is a gift for us, and we are to be, we are to be stewards of that particular thing that God has given us. He sets up a system. This is going to drive... Well, the Bernie supporters love this. Uh, he sets up a system where debts are forgiven. There's this beautiful practice that never happened in, in, in the history that we can see of Israel called the Year of Jubilee. And that was every, every 49 years, all debts were forgiven. All land that was given away was given back to the original people, and it was like a reset button. Some people are cringing. Some people are like, yeah, I need that because my college debt is huge. Um, but we have to understand that, that, that God is this king that wants to set up this kingdom, and his rule and reign is beautiful and amazing. Uh, God would be the king, and Israel would be his people, and the people's response was to obey what God had asked them to obey. But as the scripture speaks and as the story continues, the people of Israel continue to rebel and rebel and disobey, and finally... Uh, they want a king for their own. God isn't good enough because they want a king like all the other nations. And what happens is God, it says in the story, it says, uh, the people have rejected me, but I'm going to give them what they want. And in, as the story continues, what we find out is the king, and, and exactly what God says, he says, the king will rule over them. He will take their money. He will take their food. He will, he, he will not be honest, and things will just not work out well. In all, and so we have all these stories of kings that are smashed between 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and these stories about the kings are fascinating. Like none of them are good. Save one, maybe two, maybe three. But the kings just continue to, to make poor decisions. Even the great King David. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we're, we're losing our minds over a woman that can't keep track of her email. Uh, and this guy, you know, the king, this particular leader, ends up, <laughs> ends up having, having an affair with, with, with one of the military leader's wives and then sends them off to be murdered. 
And so we want to talk about the ways that we view people. We should be ticked at this guy as well, because what we see within the story of Scripture is that even in these kings, these kings will never meet up to the way that God has called to be a king, that God has set himself up to be a king. Our earthly kings will never, ever, ever be gracious, compassionate, loving, forgiving the way that God is and God can be. And so as the kings continue to fail and fail and fail, and Israel continues to disobey the law and chase after other gods, enslave people, oppress the poor, and abuse the land, this frustrates and angers God, and that's a good thing. And then what happens is he sends prophets during all that time. God is in silence. He sends prophets to speak to Israel, to speak to the kings, to remind those in power who God is and what his heart is bent towards. But as the story says, Israel does not listen time and time again. And ultimately, Israel is exiled. And they lose their land and they become slaves again, but this time in Babylon. But not all hope is lost. It is in Babylon that they are encouraged in this way. And this is Jeremiah 29. A lot of us uh, who have been around the church for years have heard this great verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. But we miss the best part, which is in the verses before it. And it says this. So imagine this. You are a people who have no, you no longer have a country. You no longer have, you, your identity is that of slave now. And this is what God speaks. Build houses, settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. My friends, the exile is this understanding, this, this discipleship, this disciplining of his people to recognize that the king and his kingdom is bigger than a land. The king and his kingdom is bigger than a ge- geographical space. It's bigger than a, than a rule of a president or a king. It, he is the king and his kingdom is everywhere. And this, this idea of living in exile, maybe, just maybe, all along, Children of God are called to live in exile because this place is not our home. Our home is something different. Our king is someone much, much different. And so God calls his people, while in exile, to live in a posture of blessing towards the nation that they were under captive in. And it's in exile that we begin to see very clearly this idea, uh, this vision of a Messiah, a saving one, to come and to save Israel and to set things right. A king, a king like David, but even better, a military genius, a king that's going to set everything right and fix all the wrongs within the, within the world. And so Israel, after years, goes back into the land. They're, they're allowed to go back, and they enter into the land, but they lose power quickly again under multiple empires, occupy them as they're waiting for God to act through this Messiah. And for 400 years, there are no prophets, no power, no nothing. God is silent. And so the people of Israel are waiting for a king. They're waiting for a king like the greatest king of all time to come and defeat the enemies of God and reestablish life uh, in Israel and Israel in control. 
And then we come to the Gospels, to the story of Jesus, the story of the Messiah. And it starts in a peculiar way. God uh, sends his son, Jesus, and Jesus takes on flesh and blood and becomes a refugee. He lives in a land where the oppressive government is in control, and he spends his life healing and restoring not people in power, but people on the fringes and in mansions as well. He also loves people in power. He spends time with the marginalized poor, the tax collectors, the weirdos, the sick, the possessed, and the oppressed. And Jesus' message is this, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news. This is Jesus' inaugural speech. I want to show it to us. Um, it's taken from uh, Luke 4, but it's, also, it's found in the prophet of Isaiah. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. My friends, Jesus, his kingdom is very, is like this. It's not one that leads in power. It's one that leads in, ser- it leads in service. And so Jesus begins in his ministry telling stories about what the kingdom is like. Uh, and we, we get this picture that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is different. He, t- he says it's like this. The kingdom is like a treasure that was buried in a field. And when you found it, you went and you sold everything you had to buy that field so you could possess that treasure. So that you could partake in that treasure. He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And so the smallest of all seeds. And then when, when we plant it in the ground, it becomes a tree. The biggest of all trees. And the funny part about that story, people, is that mustard trees, there's no such thing. They become bushes. But it's this picture, this image that what you think something so small is going to become so big and it will, it will uproot the systems. It's bigger than what we could possibly imagine. It's bigger than just a land. It's bigger than just this political ideal. He tells stories and stories and stories about what the kingdom is like. He shows us what the kingdom is like by finding people who are different than he, who are different, who are marginalized, who are on the outskirts of the community, the sick, those who, who have leprosy, those who have mental illness, those who are possessed, those who have no money, those who are in trouble, he fi- the, the prostitutes. The, he finds those people and he brings healing and restoration to them. He shows us what the kingdom looks like. And Jesus' kingdom, he says this, it is, it is in the world, but it's not of it. The kingdom is operating right now in the here and now, but it's not fully here. And it operates in completely different principles than the earthly kingdoms. Whereas earthly kingdoms may maintain order by exercising power over others, Jesus' kingdom is advanced by serving and loving our enemies. There's this really fantastic story. It's found in Matthew 21, and um, it's called the triumphal entry. This would be like um, the first day in office, so to speak, or, or maybe right after the election, if we are looking at it in terms of political. And I'm going to pick up in verse 7. It says, they brought the donkey. So imagine this. Uh, the, the, this ta- imagine Lansdale right now being flooded with 100,000 people. 
waiting for the president, waiting for, you know, waiting for some really cool holiday, and the president of the United States of America is, is coming down like this person. Or maybe it's just some great leader that we're hoping for will come and will fix things. It says this, they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put, the, and they put, them, um, they put them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. My friends, Hosanna is not just a biblical uh, word that, that, that we think just means like, This is awesome. But this is actually a political cry. That these people are saying, Is this the Messiah? Is this the guy who's going to come? They wanted a political hero to topple the oppressive Roman government, a political commander, a war hero. And within a week, the crowd was shouting, crucify him. And they wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because they thought that Jesus would rescue them politically. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was very political, but not in the sense that the people expected him to be. It left them disappointed. They wanted to kill him because of it. Let me be very clear. Jesus spoke a lot about politics, but it had very little to do with earthly politics. Did you notice Jesus lived in a very oppressive uh, climate, politically oppressive, that had much fewer freedoms than we have today, uh, and he hardly ever spoke about it. Before Pilate, right before he's crucified, Jesus says this, the kingdom is not of this world. And when he did, he said things like he called King Herod that fox. That's like saying that dog, that pig, or that squirrel. But my friends, as we, as we understand the story of Jesus and the story of, of the king and his kingdom, is that what happens is when, when the king is on the stage of the world and has a chance to take power, he lays down his life. Instead of taking power, he takes up a cross and he's crucified with his arms outstretched in complete humiliation to break the curse of sin, to set to bring the inauguration of a new kingdom that looks a lot like the oppressed being free, that looks like the blind seeing, that looks very different than the empire of Rome. And so what we understand is about, what we learn about God is this, uh, uh, and who God's character is, is that God is a king, but he's a king very different than a president or a leader in a democracy. He's a king who cares for the marginalized. He sets slaves free. He forgives. He cares about his creation. He loves his enemies. His heart is to bless the world. We learn that he sits in thrones, that he's not absent, but he's actively involved and invested in the world in which he made. We learn that he has a kingdom and that this kingdom is very different than the empire. But we also learn that Christians, people that follow Jesus, are subjects of his kingdom. And so from the start, as we sort of transition out of the story, we, I want us to take a look at the church and what it means, um, how the church has responded in very different climates politically. So from the start, we need to understand that Christianity was a movement that operated on the fringes of society. And to be a Christian meant part of that was opposing the empire. Now, this is not advocating for a complete withdrawal of society. It's not advocating for anarchy. Paul and Peter both write about the importance of honoring those in power and how we should act towards one another and those who are on the outside. 
If we look at the book of Acts, we see a new subversive kingdom that is living in the midst of an oppressive empire and that uses its power to make everything and everyone Rome. Uh, we're going to pick up in Acts 2.42. And listen to this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone is filled with awe and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another, to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. My friends, Bernie did not write this. <coughs> the picture of this is that in God's economy, there is enough. There is enough that God is big enough to give and to see things different. And this is very, this is very, this comes in tension with Rome. Because Rome exists in a power in a way that continues to keep oppressed people oppressed and other people doing very well. And you can see the lines of demarcation. A lot like the country and the places in the world in which we live now, there are lines of demarcation. And the power of these Christians, of these followers of Jesus, is that those lines were obliterated in their communities. Uh, we, we read church historians that talk about the most amazing thing happened uh, in this particular town. There are no more poor. What's going on? We, and so what we have to understand is that this, this kingdom that started was very different than the kingdom that was at power in rule at that time. In the church, they were sharing things. They were looking to the margins. They were living a different story. They were bearing witness to a greater king and a greater kingdom, showing that power, that the real power comes from serving and loving others and comes from Jesus, not from the, empire, from the emperor. One of the big themes that we see within the Gospels is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus said that as we live in the kingdom, the world will hate us. Church history shows us that more people, um, that the more the people reflected the values and the passions of Jesus, the more tension existed in the heads of states. In fact, only a few hundred years, a few hundred, first few hundred years after Jesus, Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe, um, they didn't believe uh, in, 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 the, in the idea that that, that Rome was going to be the savior, that Caesar was the savior. Uh, Tertullian, a church, uh, a church father, early church father said this. He said, we are charged with being irreligious people and what is more irreligious in the respect to the emperors since we refuse to pay religious homage to their imperial majesties and to their genius and refuse to swear by them. High treason is a crime of offense against Roman religion. It is a crime of open irreligion a raising of one of the hand to injure the deity. Christians are considered to be enemies of the state. We do not celebrate the festivals of the Caesars. Guards and informers bring up accusations against Christians. Blasphemers and traitors are what they're called. We are charged with sacrilege and high treason, and we give testimony to the truth. For the first 300 years, the church recognized and lived as exiles, as strangers in a land because they realized that the king and the kingdom they belonged to were very different than the king and kingdom that they lived under. 
And so my friends, as we think about all of this stuff, the way the church responded, the story of God and what he's done throughout history, there's a few things that I think we need to keep in mind um, as Christians, as Americans, as people who live in a country. First thing is this, we, we pay taxes. We submit to the authorities. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2.17 uh, call us not to be anarchists, but call us to be people um, who are good citizens, to show respect, to love believers, and to even, if your politics are different, to, to love each other and to honor the leaders who are in power. My friends, we should be thankful for our freedom, but we should not worship our freedom. We should not make it our, our identity or exploit it at the expense of others. Because we are exiles, we are foreigners, and we are strangers of this land because our king is Jesus. So here are the implications that this has for us today. And the first thing is this, and I want us to listen very carefully. We do not live in fear. We do not live in fear. We do not live in fear. And my friends, this political season is playing on people's fear. You know, we, we, we hear that the term sex sells. Well, fear sells as well. The implication of this, we have a king who is good and he is on throne. Therefore, we do not need to fear. Our security does not come through political figures who are corrupt and with no moral character. And the beautiful part is you have no idea which one I'm talking about right now, according to the archbishop. Uh, <clears throat> it does not come from high walls to keep enemies out. It does not come through anything other than our king, and his name is Jesus. So, my friends, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Let me be even a little more practical about these implications specifically for this church. Satan would love to divide our church to see us being a poor witness to Christ by what we say and how we say it. By what we say and how we say it. And this includes Facebook. My friends, have convictions and share them if you wish. But I have a rule that I tell, uh, that I tell my friends and people, and it's real simple. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Don't claim that God is on your side in these political places. Another implication that's extremely practical, we are going to disagree about politics. Uh, Dennis, we were chat, he sent me an email and said it's fascinating how when you look at the book of Acts, we just finished it, we, we read through Acts, took us a whole year, it was awesome. But if you look at the book of Acts, even within the church, they have disagreements to try to figure out how do, we, how do we serve the poor? How do we take care of this people? What do we do? But they come to a place of submission and unity. They submit to one another in love. They recognize that even though we disagree politically, I'm to submit my life to you. You are to submit your life to me. Let us not let our disagreements over politics distract us from following Jesus. Uh, here is a John Wesley quote. Uh, any John Wesley fans in here? Um, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee 
or reward for the person they judge most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against and to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. It feels a bit damning at times when I think about the way myself, most of us have talked about the candidates, about the presidents, about the world leaders who are in power. Wesley has a really good point for us to think through this morning. John Tyson, he's a pastor up in New York, tweeted this, resolve to read the gospels more than political commentary and online articles. Imagine what would happen if we all committed to doing that. What would that do to us as a church, a community, as followers of King Jesus? My friends, if we, if we wait for legislation to help the poor, to fix racism, uh, to, to deal with classes, and to deal with all these different things, we're going to miss following Jesus into some of the most radical places that he has always called the church to. Not just during a political season, but he's called us to be part of these things. Uh, Shane Claiborne um, he has, if anyone wants to read a good book that you'll probably disagree with most of it, but you'll really enjoy it, it'll challenge you, it'll, it'll really um, help you think about politics differently. And a lot of the stuff that, that I've, I've looked at is really, really shaped by his stuff. It says this, um, the distinctly kingdom question is not about how we should vote, but about how we should live. The decision we make in each future election is no more important than how we vote every day. We vote every day for companies, for people, and we put money towards campaigns. We need to think of the faces behind the scenes. Who are the masters, who are the master Caesars that we pledge allegiance to by the way we live and through the things we put our trust in? We vote every day with our feet, our hands, our lips, and our wallets. We are to vote for the peacemakers. We are to vote for the marginalized, the oppressed, the most vulnerable of our society. These are the ones Jesus voted for, those whom the empire left behind, those with no millionaire politician, those no millionaire politicians will represent. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez said in a post, uh, he said this, this election is just like the last. And after all the votes are counted in the late hours of November 8th, 2016, Jesus will still be king and the Lord and the government will still be on his shoulders. The true prophets of old have already spoken. Let us choose peace over conflict before we lose relationships that matter more, more than hashtag I'm with her. Let us choose humility, not self-assurance, before we lose our testimony over hashtag make America great again. Let us choose the good news of the gospel over any slogan, agenda, and or campaign. Our main objective on earth is not to influence others to vote for X, Y, and Z. Our mission and invitation is to follow Christ, to pick up the cross, which is to love others above ourselves. That's his government. And you can vote for Jesus today by honoring others. You can declare your allegiance to him by turning the other cheek. You can support his campaign with prayer and service and kindness. Uh, Mike Gribben had a, an amazing um, picture on his Facebook page. It's the, it's, it's the one that I skipped. No, not that one. Go back. Back. Uh, all the way to the, uh, there we go. 
I thought this was just brilliant. And this was written back, uh, back in the 60s, 50s, 40s. Um, I feel a strong desire to tell you, and I expect you feel a strong desire to tell me, which of these two errors is the worst? That is the devil getting at us. He always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking about which is the worst. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern than that with either of them. And so, my friends, this morning, I told you I would tell you who to vote for. And so this is what I'm going to say. Enough of the donkeys, enough of the elephants, we need to follow the lamb. So I'm going to ask that you stand with me. We are going to read the Lord's Prayer, pray the Lord's Prayer together. I wrote it up there. Some of us might not even know what that is. But this is a declaration. Uh, and look at the last line. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. When we get to that last line, I want us to actually shout that line instead of just pre praying it quietly. So we're going to pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.